Hello, and welcome to Judgment Calls. I am David Levy, director of the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke Law School. This is part two of our interview with Judge Anne Claire Williams, who served as a federal judge for more than 30 years, first on the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois in Chicago, and then on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. We talked last time about her childhood, her education, and her early career as a law clerk and a federal prosecutor. She quickly earned a strong reputation for judgment and excellence, and at the young age of 35, she was nominated to the U.S. District Court by President Ronald Reagan, and that's where we'll pick up today. Judge Williams, you had such a great and varied career on the bench. How did you enjoy being a district judge? So I loved, I loved being in the trial court and I loved the interaction I had with the lawyers, but my favorite were the jury. Yeah. I loved the jurors. I just yeah. loved them. And I wanted them. I knew when they came into the courtroom, they were not happy. You know what that's like. <laughs> I do. They I were not that. happy. So I, I did my best to make them feel comfortable and want them to be in my courtroom because I always talk to my jurors after every trial and to have them say, you know, I hated it when I got this yeah. summer. I did not want to be on this jury, but this experience has changed my whole attitude about serving the country. Because I used to also say next to being in the military, serving on the jury is the most significant thing you can do for your country. And I would add voting would be right up there equally but when they left, they knew that. And then I debriefed them. They always wanted to know what I thought. Would I have ruled the same way? I work? And then That's I had right. to explain, you know, I really can't comment on it. They're going to be post-trial motions and there'll be rulings. And then, you know, it could go up to the Court of Appeals. And I explained the whole process. So I never got into that with them. But I always sent a follow-up letter to the jurors. So... In addition to speaking with them, I sent a letter. So I'll tell you this one story. I love this. I was teaching in Minnesota, a NIDA program. The, I think it was the North Central Region is what we call the program in Minnesota with John Sunstein. And one of the lawyers, I think he was co-training with us, came up to me and said, you're Ann Williams and you sit in Chicago. And I'm like, yes. And he said, and my mother was on one of your juries. And my mother framed that letter that you sent to her. So the Boy, impact that, so that you have on the jurors, on everybody that you interact with in the district court matters. I just so agree with you. And it's such a shame that we have fewer and fewer jury trials because this is one of the most participatory aspects of, of our particular democracy. And jurors, uh, they have... You know, they're, they're bombarded with misinformation now from all sides. And this is where they, they can go in there and see, like, this is how a trial works. This is, this right. is who, this is Judge Williams, you know, and every preconception that they've had, um, they're able to test that. And they see, and it's very, very rare that you don't end a trial with the jurors saying, gee, I'm so impressed by everybody in this courthouse, from the bailiff mm -hmm. up to the judge to the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, and I, it was such a privilege to serve. And you can tell they really mean it. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, 
and absolutely. I think and and then the other thing is I loved I said I loved the lawyers because of course I was a trial lawyer yeah so we you know when magic would happen in the courtroom and when I started on the bench we couldn't I couldn't just email my clerks or text message come out but I could tell because I knew my lawyers real well so I knew who was going to really be great and I'd tell my clerks come out for openings come out for closing and if a cross was going real well or direct, I would just pick up the phone, you know, and do my no expression talk. I'd say, get out here right now. This is magic. And then we watched the magic. And then of course we watched the train wrecks yeah, in too. terms of how people tried cases. And the other thing I enjoyed was, um, especially when I joined the court, there was Jim Parsons who was African-American, he was the yeah. first in the whole country. Yes, and then George Layton, another incredible rock star, heroic figure. He was the second black judge, but I was the first black woman. And so to see the pride that people took in my being there and uh, because, you know, like my father told me, never let the robe get in the way of my humanity even though there was no question who ran the courtroom, I believe that I was always respectful to everyone and treated everybody with respect and took time with people. And that matters in terms of the image of the judiciary. It matters how you treat people. It matters if you take the time. And I remember once there was a criminal case, it was a fraud case, maybe $200,000. Uh, the victim was a black small businessman and the defendant was also black and he had stolen i don't know maybe a hundred thousand dollars from this business it was really very unfortunate situation and of course the victims were very very upset well between the time that the guy pled when he was sentenced he was diagnosed with aids so the guy who appeared before me for sentencing was just a shadow of a man like he was down to like 90 pounds. And when he came in for the sentencing, he said, you know, I'd never done anything in my life to shame my family, but I have shamed my family, my mother, everything they stood for, and I am worthless, you know, and um, I'm ready to die. Well, you know, it was, I said to him, you know what you have said, that you were sorry and you made a terrible mistake, but I am going to give you the opportunity to live out this last two months of your life with your family, because what is the point? Yeah. Now, of course, the victim was very upset, but I didn't care. It was the first time I actually came down from the bench and gave a defendant a hug. I think it was the first and only time I did that. That was difficult, but I always wanted people to feel like they were treated fairly in my courtroom, regardless of their age, race, sex, none of that really mattered. Anyway, that, that, that was why, and I, and I love people. I think that's pretty obvious. I love people and love the interaction with people. And I just had and you learn so much. You, you learn do. so much. I, I loved the jury selection process just because it was so interesting. You'd say, you know, Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so, you know, tell us uh, where you grew up. Uh, do you have any kids? You know, all these questions. And you'd learn so much about people. Oh, and my it's, God. I, it's, I, when I have these discussions with other people, I'll say, you didn't pick juries for 20 years. You know, I'm just telling you, people love this country. They want to serve. 
there's a lot of goodwill out there. You know, the average Absolutely. person is a great person. And to get to the heart of it, like it, I took a lot of pride too in jury selection when, you know, because the panel would sometimes go to another courtroom or because it, when we started, the jury served for like a month. So you were eligible for a month to serve on the jury. It wasn't that you show up one day, you get picked or you show up, you don't get picked and you don't show up again for a year or two years. So you were in the panel. And when the prosecutor would say, you know, he just served in a jury in such and such a courtroom and he never, we never found out that his son was addicted to drugs. Well, yeah. Uh, because it was just, any of those difficult case questions, I always did at sidebar. I always said, have you, a family member or a close friend ever been addicted to drugs? You, yeah. a family member, a close friend convicted of a crime so that I could take that burden off. And as soon as they'd say yes, nobody in the audience knew the answer. Was it them? Was it their family? Was it their friends? And we took all those questions at sidebar. And then I got people to open up. So, and, and you said the variety, just the variety cases on the district court. I think it would have been very hard for me to be a state court judge assigned to one court. I wonder if you agree with this statement. Uh, uh, judge Jose Gabranas once said to me, well, he said, if you can be a judge on the district court and the circuit court, that's really ideal. But if you can only have one, it's got to be the district court. <laughs> what do you think? Well, a lot depends on your background. Now, someone who's been an academic yeah. or who's been an appellate lawyer, clearly the appellate court is where they would but, but if I had to pick, I would say, yes, the district court. Now, the other thing I would say is, I think it's a tremendous advantage to have been a district judge before I went to the Court of Appeals because I knew how things worked in the real world. Right. And it wasn't theoretical. Like I can remember when I went to the Court of Appeals and there was an issue relating to the dismissal of a case. And I settled a lot of cases in the district court. That's the other thing I loved about the district court. I love settling cases. And I especially love the ones where the lawyers would say, this case will never settle in a million yeah. years. <laughs> and after two or three settlement conference, I settled it. It was the yeah. only place where you as a judge got to shine. It was the yeah. only place where we got to use our advocacy skills, our persuasive right. skills. Yeah. So um, I, I just love that when they'd say, no, 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 it's not no, we're not going to settle. And I would, I would get them to settle. So I, I did love the aspect of settlement. Now on the court of appeals, knowing what I knew on the district court, I was going to tell you about this case. So you'd have a settlement conference. Sometimes I have my court reporter in there. Anytime I thought there was any chance the thing could blow back, I had my court reporter come in because I wanted to make sure everybody said, oh, yeah. yes, I've agreed. Yes, I've agreed. Yes, I've agreed. Right. We had one situation, I'm trying to think, where in the Court of Appeals, we had a situation where a district court judge had dismissed a case without prejudice. And knowing that the signed plea agreement was going to come forward, you know, like two months later. So the question was whether or not it was a final judgment. And I was on the case with another person, another judge who had never been a trial lawyer, never been a trial judge and said, well, I don't understand this. Why, why wasn't it? I said, I know what's going on. The parties have said they're going to settle. The judge has given them two months to bring in the, the final order because sometimes you can't get all the details in that conference. Yeah. 
That's right. You don't have the signature of the, you can ask for the principal, but even if you have the principal, they're going to have to, if it's a corporation or something, they're going to have to run that by somebody. There are all these little nuances. I wasn't, I never got into all the nitty gritty of the settlement. I got the essence of the settlement done. And I always said, okay, we've got all that on the record. Now you all get the paperwork in, but it's just a small example of if you've been there, you understand what's going on. And as a trial judge, you understand at the appellate level why the judges don't always make perfect decisions. Right. They're under fire. <laughs> They're under fire. They don't have the amount of time that we have on the Court of Appeals to go through the record and review everything and look at all the cases and really contemplate and go back and forth with our law clerks. Yes, on the critical issues and some of the hard issues of the day, district judges do the same thing. But the volume is so great that you have to move through the cases with some speed or you're stuck with a humongous docket. So you do yep. the best you can with the research you have. You make those calls. You try to make a really good record. You explain your reasoning to the Court of Appeals and then you move on to the next case. So I think being a trial judge was helpful. Let's talk some more about the sentencing guidelines because that was such a big part of your time on the bench and, and mine as well. And um, just for mo most of our judges who listen to this will know exactly what we're talking about, although they may not know the entire history to it. But there was a, a time in the, I think it was be began in the 70s really, when, when judges became, like judges like uh, Marvin Frankel, became very concerned about disparity in sentencing from courtroom to courtroom. And so we got the sentencing guidelines. And on top of that, we got the mandatory minimums and everything went up. It, it was one of those situations where the intent was the right intent to make things fair. But what happened in the guidelines, a lot of the discretion we had was thrown to the prosecutor because what yep. you were charged with had a lot to do with what your calculation was. And then under these guidelines, and I was one of the ones who ruled against this, even if you pled guilty to two counts and your guideline range was a certain range, if there was other conduct, even a, the same crime, but say more checks for more value, let's just stick with these postal checks with, with checks in the mail that number could be thrown right back into the sentencing calculation. So it was like, you weren't even getting what you bargained for. You were actually getting more. So I thought that was unfair. So that was uncharged conduct. And then even if you pled guilty or if you, you went to trial and you were found guilty, oh, you were acquitted say on one count, you could still throw that uncharged conduct, I mean, that charged conduct of, on which you were acquitted, that could go in the calculation by a different standard, not proof by a reasonable doubt, but likelihood or not. I think that was the stand, a preponderance mm -hmm. of the evidence was the right. standard that we used. So it was a lesser standard. So you go to trial, you get acquitted, and the court could still take into account that conduct. And it was very difficult to ignore it because the only way we were able to ignore it is if we knew the prosecutor would go along with us because the prosecutor could rightfully under the law say, no, you have to include that acquitted conduct. It didn't help on the disparity 
with black and brown people. And it was horrible when we made the transition from the no guidelines to guidelines, because there were people in jail sitting next to each other that were, after they did a third of their time under the old system, were eligible for parole. And under the new system, you had to do 85% of your time unless you cooperate and you get a waiver, 85% of your time. So people with the same crimes, the person under the guidelines serving more time, just as the mandatory minimums, because you just threw the guidelines away with the mandatory minimums. And the mandatory minimums were extremely harsh and extremely harsh as it related to black and brown and poor people. And uh, we just, I'm on a committee of the Northern District of Illinois, and we have asked uh, pretrial services and the probation department to give us the stats on the, the racial demographics in terms of sentencing and the length of sentence and that kind of thing. And still that disparity exists. That disparity. I find this very hard to think through and I, I've tried. I, I did a program with the mayor of Chicago. You probably know her. She was an assistant U.S. attorney and well-respected lawyer. And, and and I did a conversation with her about six weeks ago. So you know, and she's mm-hmm. um, she's tough-minded and she knows these these problems don't have an easy solution. When you and I were prosecutors, the black community's main concern was not over-policing, it was under-policing. I would say that there were certain campaigns and things targeted at certain crimes. And we have to step back to and see those various times when the number of arrests that the police made tied directly to like promotions and how highly regarded they were. And so we had a lot of emphasis when the resources did come to the community that were poured into the community. And a lot of people were picked up on a lot of minor crimes. So in some sense, to me, I would say there was over-policing and not a respect for rights and the whole George Floyd murder and the murders that preceded that and the murders that subsequent murders of black people, that was not news to me. It was not a surprise to me. It's something that we've suffered in the black community for generations. So this whole issue of policing, because there are, and you know, as prosecutors, we work with a lot of great agents and people right. who were fair. And of course, part of our job was to make sure they played by the rules. So I can remember cases where the agents came to me and they violated uh, the rights of a prospective defendant. And we had to find another way to get that case. We had to put that on the shelf or try to find another way to do further investigation because there were certain violations. You know, because you and I were prosecutors who cared about fairness. It was not the win. Yes, you wanted to win, but you wanted to win fairly. So we have so much that needs to be done in our criminal justice system, but we have a lot that needs to be done in our society because the other thing the George Floyd moment brought out, which is now movement and COVID was the great racial, ethnic and economic disparity we have in this country. And the fact that black and brown people pay the brunt of the price. We've got to do something to reform and to recognize some of the institutional racism that's been built in to our rules and our policy and our laws. And we have to educate the public. It was a great tragedy, as Justice O'Connor said, 
when civics was dropped from so many school curriculum because people didn't understand what their rights were, didn't understand how the government worked. I mean, to me, some of what we're seeing today in this dysfunction that we have is people not understanding their rights and not getting the real truth about our history and about the various people and the various groups that have come to America, whether enslaved or people who ran here for freedom, it was not told in the history books. So there's a, to me, a huge uh, disparity in sort of understanding who we are and the fact that we started uh, with the killing and murder and stealing of land of the indigenous people in this country. So we've got a lot to deal with on the racial reckoning side, on the economic reckoning side, all these people who are out of work poor people who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And then with COVID and everything, and that's like ripped the bandaid off all of that. So we really get to see who's paying the price and who hasn't benefited from the American dream. So we have, we have these big issues and the society needs to come to grips with them. I, I totally agree with you with it. It might be interesting for you and me to talk a, a little bit about the judicial culture. Um, you know, I was a district judge in Eastern California. My colleagues, uh, we didn't have a, a female judge, but we were very diverse racially, ethnically, um, sometimes kind of half and half black or half and half Hispanic. And my colleagues and I, uh, we, we all, I think we could have frank discussions. And I'm wondering whether you felt the same way or did you have a different experience? Well, we did have a sentencing group that met once a week and we shared with each other the pre-sentence reports and we chatted about the cases, but I would not describe it the way you described your colleagues. Like we didn't spend a lot of time talking about race and social economic issues. I mean, we did talk about the individual and what their background was. I think that the other thing the George Floyd murder, which happened before everybody's eyes, which is part of why I think it has resonated more deeply, at least for this generation, because it's like Emmett Till and Martin Luther King and John Lewis for sort of like earlier generations, those moments that we shared as a culture because everybody was at home because of COVID. I think that what has come out of that is an acknowledgement of institutional racism in this country and the number of allies that have been educated or understand the situation that black people have been in and brown people have been in. Because when you look at the, the demonstrations, the peaceful demonstrations around this country, and many of those protests were in areas that were all white. And I think because we were all looking at the screen and heard that man say, I can't breathe, it had an impact. So when have we seen corporations issuing statements the way they have? Educational institutions, not-for-profit institutions, individuals, uh, leaders in the government, just across every race, sex, religion, for people, when you look at even like Amazon, look at the, uh, the books that were number one 
that, that relate to a white privilege or the cast book or books that deal with race, those are still some of the number one bestsellers. That's never happened before, to my knowledge, in this country. The difference in the conversations we can have now, David, where people can honestly say, I'm uncomfortable talking about race, you know, because before it was like everybody was supposed to say, no, I'm colorblind. I don't see color and all that. And that, you know, people see color. Everybody has bias. Everybody has bias, but we didn't talk about it to me in the same way. So I think it's freed black people to talk more honestly. And I think it's freed white folk to talk about it too. And to have uncomfortable conversations because the conversations aren't easy. So to me, we have to find ways to have those conversations to educate ourselves so that we can understand and put ourselves in the shoes of others. It's been a moment and a movement that's given me hope because the editorials from white Christian evangelicals and Jewish people and Black people and just kids writing saying or parents saying, you know, my kids really, they want to be in these demonstrations and I didn't really understand and my kids are like educating me then people really feeling the pain that Black people have felt, you know, and that fear and that conversation, that talk, I had that with my kids. Be careful of the police. Say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Have your hands out. Because at any moment, it could change on a dime if you give any kind of lip. And when we look at the people who were murdered by the police, you know, I always ask myself, would that have happened if the person was white? And nope. When we look at that guy who murdered all those people in South Carolina in the church, he had murdered all those people. The police knew he had murdered all those people and he came out of the church. He was able to peacefully give himself up. You know, they had their guns aimed at him, but, but, but there's so many instances, and I'm not saying that white folk haven't been, you know, unfairly treated by police or there hasn't been some brutality because they're just some cops that are brutal and ignore rights. I don't think that's the majority of the cops, but I think we need to have a cultural shift in how we view each other. And we need to get to know each other. You and I have had the benefit because when you're on the bench, all kinds of people appear before us. And like you said, we learn so many stories and we're exposed to so many different cultures, but that's not the, the average American. It's true. You know, uh, you and I, full disclosure, we, we know one another's families and uh, we know that uh, there's some communities in this in this country, not so many, but there are a few. And where I grew up and where you now live, which is is actually well integrated. Absolutely. And that used to be part of our dream was to have a, you know, that was Martin Luther King's dream. And it just hasn't it hasn't been fulfilled for so many different reasons. No. People that people just don't know each other. And you've you've tried to address some of these things in your own way by building pipelines for women and minorities and or helping to get people into those pipelines. You, would you talk a little bit about that, that work that you've been doing? So in my life before, I think I mentioned when we first got together, you know, I was a teacher and taught in the inner city public schools and I've always loved teaching. And I think that's who I am fundamentally a teacher. So the first, thing that I helped create was something called Minority Legal Education Resources, Inc. It was when I was taking the bar. There was a professor at Northwestern by the name of Ron Kennedy. And at that time, the pass rate for African-Americans in Illinois was low for the bar. 
So Ron decided he would start this class with five black graduates of Northwestern. And basically it was a class where you took practice exams. You looked at the old exams in the Illinois bar and you wrote those exams under the same conditions you would as the bar because I'm always something that is looking for opportunities. So when I heard about that, I said, well, can I join? <laughs> so they went back. He said, no, you went to Notre Dame, not Northwestern, no go. But I never forgot that. And so a couple of years later, I'm in the US Attorney's Office and a black guy who was at Northwestern, Al Moran, I said, Al, is Ron Kennedy still running that class? He said, yes. I said, is the pass rate 100, still 100%? He said, yes. I said, well, is he expanded it to include people not at North? He said, no. I said, well, would you introduce me? So Al got, got an appointment. We went to see Professor Kennedy. And of course, who did he? He doesn't know me. I mean, like the woman in the moon, like who is she? I said, well, I think you need to expand it. And he looked at me because, you know, he was an academic. He had a good thing going. He had a hundred percent pass rate. He had his method down. Why would he want to experiment with me? I said, well, how about this? If I get some of my friends and you teach us and we do a non-Northwestern group, and we get the same pass rate, can we talk? And that's what we did. So we formed Minority Legal Education Resources, Inc., and we have helped more than 4,500 lawyers in the course of the years pass the bar. We equal the Illinois pass rate, and it's been open to everyone from the beginning. So wow. that was one pipeline, really important pipeline, and now we're in California because someone at the board uh, on the California Board of Bar Examiners heard a presentation I did, came to MLER, and now we're working on a program out there to help people pass the bar. There are a lot of reasons why. I mean, there are reasons why the pass rate is not as great. Some of it has to do with people having to work as soon as they get out of um, law school and thinking they can handle the job and passing the bar or family obligations or to me uh just the idea of the practice dealing with some of the anxiety so that was one group and then um another group uh, we started the black women lawyers association in chicago um there was some controversy with that because the cook county bar which was the traditional um African-American Bar Association, and I love the Cook County Bar, they did a great job, wondered why did we have to do a Black women's bar? Why couldn't we stay within that organization? Well, we felt there were certain needs that Black women had in common, um, interests, and that it would be important to start it. So we started that. It's one of the best bar associations in the Chicagoland area and serves as a way for women to network and to extend their careers. And more importantly, for me, this kind of organization is an organization that nourishes your soul. So you learn leadership skills, you get to interact with people outside of the Black women lawyers, and it positions you to become a member of the larger legal community, which is really important to me. So I've always done things that relate to African-Americans, Black people helping pipeline, but to me, if I just stay within that area, yes, I can be successful and I can do wonderful things. But to me, when we have those skills, we need to get involved in the larger community and to use those skills in a more fulsome way. 
So many of the women who were presidents of Black Women Lawyers Association became presidents of the Chicago Bar Association, our largest bar association, became leaders in other fields, became judges, became magistrates, because they gained the confidence in those organizations to step out into a bigger world. In the meantime, I was stepping out into a bigger world because when I went and became a district court judge and I always loved teaching, I'll never forget Hugh Will, who was a rock star, as far as I'm concerned, in the Northern District. He was the father of the pretrial order. He was the one who said people shouldn't just not try cases and come in and just call witnesses. Nobody knows who's next. Nobody knows who the, where, what exhibits are being offered. He organized our first pretrial order. Anyway, he was a founder of the Federal Judges Association. So I was on the bench a couple of years. I had joined. I had paid my dues. It's kind of like our union. You know that, David. But anyway, he says to me, are you going to the, to the meeting? We have a meeting every four years. And I'm like, no, I'm not going, Hugh. I'm too busy, yang, yang, yang. He said, no, you need to be active in the Federal Judges Association. So he persuaded me. I paid, I went. I did not know he was going to nominate me to be treasurer of the organization. Mm. But he did, because he did not tell me that part of the plan. I ended up being treasurer for four years and then moved into president-elect and ended up being the first black president of the Federal Judges Association. I tell that story not because I was so exceptional or so different or so whatever, but to say that you can be a leader within your own affinity group, I'm a big believer in affinity groups, but then you need to translate that where you can have greater influence and greater power. So that being with the Federal Judges Association, was huge. And I was also asked to teach about after five years on the bench at the Federal Judicial Center. Well, you know, I was a teacher anyway, and civil case management was my thing, settlement, managing cases. I loved it. And as you know, there were many people when we went on the bench that didn't think the judge should do any management. It was just right. like, tell me when you're ready, I'm going. Oh, it'll take two years to do depositions, fine. I mean, just but when we came along, people were really beginning to focus on case management and realizing that you wanted to try the cases in the least amount of time, have the cases resolved, least amount of time, least cost, high level of justice. So then I started teaching and for seven years, I taught every new class of baby federal judges. That's how I got to know so many federal judges across the that's, country. That's, that's great. Really I love cool. that. And I taught Sonia Sotomayor. That's how I met her. And we became <laughs> really that? good friends. And I knew when we we became really friendly and we went out after the sessions and stuff. And, and I told her, you know, early on, I said, you're going to be the one that makes it to the Supreme Court when they're, you know, for Latinas, you're going to be the one because she had the whole package. That's just a side. But that was helpful. So then after that, I was asked at some point to join a judicial conference committee. I think it was at this, I think I had joined the court administration and case management committee. Frank McGar, who was the chief, had recommended me because I like, I love case management. And uh, I served on that committee for four years, appointed by, um, that was Justice Rehnquist. I'll never forget Bob Parker from Texas, who would not be offended by me calling him a good old boy because he really was a good old boy with one of those 10 gallon hats and everything, <laughs> made me chair of one of the subcommittees and we were at a cocktail party and he came up to me and said, you know, my time as chair is uh, coming to an end and I think you should be the next chair. So I said to him, oh, Bob, 
that's alcohol talking. He said, oh, no, no. no, I think you should be the next chair. Uh, there had never been a black woman chair or a woman of color chair of any judicial conference committee. So of course I had two kids, I had to think about it. You know, it's a lot of work, but I thought about it and I came back to him uh, when the meeting was over and I said, I'm comfortable with you submitting my name. And I was fortunate enough to be selected by Chief Justice Rehnquist to be chair of court administration and case management. Yeah. The three year term, important. and an then I got committee. extended for another year. I got a chance to testify in front of uh, House Judiciary Committees, Senate Judiciary Committees, on things like courtroom sharing, cameras in the courtroom, a lot of the things that still we talk about now, of course, COVID is taking care of cameras because yeah. now, <laughs> now we have cameras in the Definitely. courtroom. The other thing that I would say is, you know, you have to learn to say yes in your career. So yes, it was scary for me to say, I mean, I knew I had a caseload. I didn't want to go to that Federal Judges Association meeting, but there was, there's always something in my gut that says, you know, you need to say yes. And when he asked me to be the chair, I looked around and I said, well, who else could be picked for this? Because sometimes in the moment, you're the one. It doesn't have anything to do with ego. It's just when you look around, there's nobody else that's going to say yes or that's going to be asked. And so sometimes you have to step out there. So I did that. And then in 92, I started uh, just the beginning, a pipeline organization. That started in honor of Judge James Benton Parsons, who was the first judge of color in the United States, sat in Chicago. And ultimately, we came with the idea of starting summer camps for high school students. And so we've had, since 06, our uh, summer programs for our high school students. And I think we're in seven or eight cities and it's a week long program. They get to meet lawyers and judges. The things that I didn't have, cause I didn't, I didn't know anybody. They get to meet these role models, visit law firms, write their personal essay for college, learn to do an oral argument, have a day in federal court. So that's been very successful. And in fact, I was, I'm scheduled to do a program and one of the women graduated two years ago on the call is a woman who took our program in Indianapolis in high school and is now a lawyer. Oh, so that high good. school program really works. And then we have programs for uh, law students. We have an internship program. We placed 92 diverse students in the chambers of 60 federal judges this summer. It's about the seventh or eighth year we've done that program. We have a program for law clerks. We placed about 120 clerks in the chambers of federal judges. So I really believe in passing on the blessing. There were so many people. I mentioned Hugh Will. I mentioned, you know, Rehnquist appointed. You know, I, I mentioned these people. So many hands reached out to me and a lot of them were people who didn't look like me. And I think when you get in a position and have been blessed like I have, you have an obligation to give back and to make sure you might be first but you won't be the last. So when my name came up for the Court of Appeals, unlike the district court where I was a total unknown except for the Justice Department and all the US attorneys I had worked with in the Drug Task Force, because they ended up being my mentors, people like Sarah Barker and uh, Joe Statmuller and uh, Lowell Jensen, who was working for the Attorney General at the time, they stood up for me, but I didn't know anything about how things worked. You know, I was like independent, had never 
been engaged in any kind of politics. Well, by the time my court of appeals came, I still wasn't in, in politics. I was still independent, but I had all these people when my name came up that said, what can we do? How can we help? Well, you know, we'd love to see you get this position. And I had had all these experiences. So that then led to the Court of Appeals. Of course, there were issues with the Clinton White House because they were like, she was appointed by Reagan. Why did she refer <laughs> to the Court of Appeals? So, you know, a lot of the work that I've done uh, starting all these different organizations, uh, the teaching I had done, all of that mattered to the Clinton White House. And, you know, I had been on the bench almost 15, 15 years. So I had a lot of experience behind me. So yeah. all of those things sort of came together. And um, it's very unusual to be appointed by presidents of different parties. And it's uh, really a testament to, to your your incredible quality. It just seemed uh, inevitable in a way, probably to those presidents that they would want to appoint you. You had a wonderful career on the on the circuit court. And then a, a time, the time came where you decided to leave the bench and to do something new, which you're now doing. You jo you're of counsel with Jones Day. And would you talk about what you're doing? Because it's quite, it seems quite extraordinary. Well, I started going to Africa again, back to the Federal Judges Association. See, you never know when you say yes, where it's gonna lead you. So we are members of the International Judges, International Association of Judges. I think I have that, I think I have that correct. Anyway, as president, I was going to go to a meeting in the Ivory Coast in Africa. And as fate would have it, there was a civil war that year. I was unable to go. But I had my ticket and I had some friends at the State Department who said, well, why don't you go to Ghana? We're trying to do work with the Ghanaian judiciary. So I went to Ghana, fell in love with Africa and uh, then went back to Ghana two, two more times. Ultimately, uh, through NIDA, the National Institute for Trial Advocacy, started training at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda that was dealing with the genocide in Rwanda and at The Hague dealing with Milosevic, we were training prosecutors. That then led to me teaching with Lawyers Without Borders. And I've been working with Lawyers Without Borders for many, many years across the continent. And with Nita, one of uh, my great buddies is a guy named Mike Ginsberg, an extraordinary teacher. And he does all, he leads the training at Jones Day. I invited him to come to Kenya on a Lawyers Without Borders project. and. He came, he fell in love and he came every year and we did training for civil lawyers and prosecutors, defense attorneys, magistrates. And ultimately Jones Day did an incredible amount of work with lawyers without borders. So that's kind of setting the stage, but there were many other law firms I work with, many judges I work with, with the state department with lawyers without borders. So, um, I continued to do these trips to Africa, leading the delegations, doing the appellate advocacy, trial advocacy, case management, working a lot with the judiciary. So it became a passion of mine. I mentioned that, you know, as the ancestor of enslaved people, I didn't know who my people were. So Africa held a special place in my heart because I knew my people were somewhere from there. And secondly, it was because of my mother. My mother loved to travel. 
and was very excited when I started going to Africa and wanted to come with me. But by that time, her health was failing and it was too dicey. And so it was always a goal of my mother's to go to Africa. So I think in some ways I'm fulfilling her dream. So the training and the number of countries that I have done training in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Namibia, Liberia, Nigeria, uh, and I know I'm missing a couple. I felt that I could offer a lot. I had been on the bench almost 30, I think 33 years, and I wanted to make a different kind of contribution. So I decided to leave. It was a tough decision because I love being on the bench. I love being on the Court of Appeals, but I felt that if I didn't go then, when would I be able to go? So I was eligible for senior status. I went senior for a short time. And then I ended up with Jones Day because that was the firm that I had had the most familiarity with. I knew what their commitment was to Africa. So we don't have offices in Africa. We have clients that do some business in Africa that would like to do more business in Africa. There are some countries in Africa like Namibia that are very advanced in terms of rule of law, computers on the bench, everything really organized, uh, very focused on case management. Uh, and then there are countries that because of the volume and various logistical issues have many challenges. So Jones Day wanted me to do what I could to try to improve the rule of law and enhance it, a long range plan with the idea that ultimately there would be more and more business coming to that continent. And it is the youngest continent. And I had a track record there. And so I'm in a position where I can use the resources of the firm, use the contacts I have and the collaborations with NIDA, the National Institute for Trial Advocacy, with Lawyers Without Borders, with the State Department, all those things have come together. So it's very exciting and fulfilling work. Plus, I was able to bring my permanent clerk, Erin McGinley, who was with me in the court for more than 12 years. And she's been on, if I've been to Africa 30, 35 times, she's been 20. She was she graduated number one in her class at Loyola and um, is a brilliant person. And it was on the faculty and adjunct at Loyola. So they said yes to me and to Aaron. And so the work, I have really, really enjoyed it. I'm doing work that's impactful, or we hope it's impactful and more institutional and systemic. And now I'm able to devote my full time to it. So I miss my colleagues. I miss the work, but I'm very excited uh, to be where I am. That's exciting. When I end these discussions that I've had with judges, I'd like to ask whether you have one judicial role model or one judicial hero. And in your case, I think I know who that is because you wrote such a beautiful article about Judge Constance Baker Motley, who was a huge figure in the civil rights movement and then was a wonderful judge on the Southern District for many years. And I'm thinking that's your, your judicial hero. Am yeah, I right? I, I would say you're right. I mean, she was, was a rock star. She was amazing. You knew her, David, plus that deep voice she had and the way she spoke. The way, I mean, she, she, just, she was so amazing. She was so smart. She, she was such a, a student of human behavior. 
and so fair and so thoughtful in her manner and yet so kind and mentored so many people. So I don't know if you, you probably know the story of her and Justice Sotomayor. So Sotomayor had been asked to consider the Supreme Court. No, it was the... Maybe it was the Court of Appeals. I think, I think it was that... the Court of Appeals. I think it was going yeah. to be. So Connie had a discussion with her and basically said, you have been asked and you have to say yes. Why are you <laughs> hesitating? You know what I mean? She mentored so many people, men and women, every color. Didn't She was just tremendous in her bearing, her demeanor. As I said in that article, how she shoved off every ism. So that story about her going to the private club in New York for the judges meetings once a month and women were not permitted. So at some point, Connie asked one of her colleagues, how is it that I can come to these meetings? And he said, oh, well, we tell them you're the secretary and you have to take notes. Now, it is true, as you know, when you're the baby judge, when you're the junior. You take notes, yeah. Take the notes at the judges meeting. But she was also a judge. <laughs> and Connie would tell that story and she'd bring flowers for the table. I mean, she never let any of that get in the way of what she needed to do. She never let it move her off her prize or her course. And so whenever I have moments when I am down or I think uh, there was this slight or I could read in someone's eyes that I was being judged because of my color or my gender, I think about Connie and I say, I can carry on because she carried on. Now you asked me about one, but I also need to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg because she was also uh, an inspiration to me. And we spent a lot of time together and I admired her greatly because she was an iron butterfly, never to be deterred from her course and a steel trap mind with an incredible memory. Always focused, always her eyes on the prize. And in these later years, when she became RBG, was just fascinated by the fact and befuddled a little that she would be a rock star in her 80s, that people would find her story so fascinating. But she and Connie had so much in common in the sense of their humanity and what they had been through. And so they had empathy. They understood the human condition. And when you stood before them in court, you knew that you were being fairly treated. And they had that uppermost in their minds. So, well, those are pretty good. You know, you picked a couple of rock stars, and I think we've got a trio here. <laughs> You're a rock star, and what an honor uh, to have had this time with you and to talk with you. I can't thank you enough for your your service to the courts and to our country, and now uh, to other countries uh, in pursuit of the rule of, of law. You do so much to build and and sustain that and to bring others along. I'm David Levy. Thank you so much for joining us today on Judgment Calls. And thank you, Judge Williams. And thank you so much, David, for having me. It was an honor and a privilege. And to be with you and spend some time with you was a real treat and a joy. Judgment Calls is produced by the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke University. Find us online at judicialstudies.duke.edu.